This month, we've been talking about what it means to be a people of balance. And like all our monthly themes, we've spent the last four years looking at a sim single theme through different lenses. The first two weeks of the month, we talked about the balances present at the heart of Unitarian Universalism, the, the balance between roots and wings, what our tradition calls us to and what new possibilities might await. And we talked about the balance between free and responsible in our fourth principle, that we are called to a free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are called to that search, each of us individually, and we are responsible to each other. And last week, we talked about self-care, the balance between working in the world and savoring it. And I love talking about balance. I love it. Throughout, we've been, we've been touching on this idea of polarity, how two deeply held values can seem opposed to each other but generate growth and ideas in the tension between them. So roots and wings are held in tension, free and responsible, saving the world and savoring it. And if, <laughs> if this all sounds familiar, it's been the driving idea through the last three weeks of sermons, but also probably the last nine months of sermons. It is one of my favorite ways of coming at a topic. If you look at this year's sermons from September on and counted them out, you'd probably find about two-thirds follow this same pattern. A is important. B is important. How can they both be important? How do we balance their importance in our lives? Where do we go from here? This is not one of those sermons. We're at the end of March now. So this is a Sunday about things not in balance, at least that we hope are not in balance. April's theme is emergence, and, and so we might think of this sermon as a transition. As balances tip, something new emerges into the world. This is the first week of spring, believe it or not. And granted, I did not know when I wrote the blurb talking about how we would talk about spring on this particular Sunday that it would be 37 degrees out and raining. At least it's not snowing. <laughs> <laughs> At least it's not snowing for now, for now. We'll see what tonight holds. But this is astronomical spring. The vernal equinox was on Tuesday. So what's the vernal equinox? Anyone? It's in balance. Okay, what's in balance? Light and dark, day and night. It's the spring one. Yeah, there are two. There's one in the fall, too. We're moving into the bright half of the year. We're coming into the bright half of the year. The sun sits on the equator, which means the sun rises smack dab in the east for one day. What else? Easter? It's the, it's the first day of spring. The equinoxes, both in spring and in fall, are, along with the summer and winter solstices, some of the oldest holidays in just about every human tradition. Because they are holidays where there's empirical evidence. There's no supernatural miracle. There's no 
narrative shared by one group of people but not the other. There's just a slow progression of seasons as the sun tracks from one quadrant of the sky to another. Since the, the winter solstice in December, the longest night of the year, the days have slowly been getting longer and longer and longer. In June, they will be the longest they are all year, and the nights will be the shortest. But this week, on Tuesday, the day and the night was equal. They're at a balance point. The winter winds and summer rains both present in this moment. And the astronomical holidays are old ones because we all share the rhythm of the seasons. Stonehenge, the pyramids, monuments all over the world are built facing where the sun rises on the equinox. Many churches are built with the sanctuary facing directly east, defined for centuries as where the sun rises on the morning of the spring equinox. This is one of those churches. <laughs> if we had come in on Tuesday morning, and if it had been sunny, and lifted these curtains right here on the morning, the sunrise would have been right out there and would have shined into this room, I think, if my compass is right. I see Kurt shaking his head, so I think I may be a little wrong by that one, but it's close enough. Many non-astronomical holidays are related to this rhythm. Famously, Christmas falls in the same week as the winter solstice and uses some solstice-like ritual. As best we could tell, there was not a Yule log in the manger. <laughs> and for the equinoxes, Passover begins on the first full moon following the, the spring equinox, which is Friday. The date of Easter is set by the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox, <laughs> which is next Sunday. And if you go to a seminary, you'll be quizzed on how well you can respond with that fact. <laughs> the equinox is a powerful symbol because it is both a balance point and a pivot. Yes, it's, it's the point on the calendar where two things are equal that are usually different. But it's also a moment that marks the end of something, winter, and the beginning of a new season. Stacy and I were married on the equinox, and I have always loved that symbolism. Here was a day where two stood equal, and a day that marked the beginning of something new. A day of balance, but also a day of emergence. I am quite certain that the students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, were not thinking about the vernal equinox when they called for a national day of protest on March 24th. But I have not been able to let go of that connection this week. As we've made signs at the Bay, exchanged messages on social media, saw the pictures coming in yesterday from all over the country. Many of us marched from the University Student Union to the state capitol. We marched in remembrance of all the students lost to gun violence, all the people lost to gun violence. But 
more than remembrance, we march to demand that this is unacceptable, that something has to change, that there has to be a new season, that the legislatures have the power to change gun laws and they are going to hear us. Five weeks ago, in this pulpit, I preached about guns. On the Sunday after the shooting in Parkland, I told you that I had most of a sermon planned on Thursday about how we shouldn't accommodate ourselves to the world. And I told you how I turned on the news, heard that 17 students and teachers were dead, and wondered if I should mention it in that sermon. We wouldn't want to get distracted from the important message of not accommodating ourselves to a new normal. There's a, there's a truism when you learn to preach. Uh, preach from your scars, not from your wounds. And on that Sunday, I walked right up to that line. If you're still bleeding, physically, emotionally, or spiritually, wait to preach that sermon another time. Don't bleed on the congregation, my professors told me. So I walked right up to that line because we have been fighting this for years, decades. I have lost friends to gun violence and I've seen nothing change. And so it was hard to have hope. It's hard to have hope because we're stuck in a perverse kind of balance. A shooting happens, everybody immediately stops what they're doing to focus on the horror, thoughts and prayers are offered, usually sincerely. And then within a day or so, half the country seems to say, we can solve this with policy, and another half discovers that mental health issues exist. <laughs> and we all yell at each other, there's no progress, and eventually a tweet derails whatever conversation has started. And then it happens again. It is perverse, and it has proven hard to shift. Just a few years ago, after the killings at Sandy Hook, a lot of us thought, this, surely this, this cannot stand. If this doesn't, if this doesn't tip the scales, I can't see what will. And it didn't. And so we get stuck in grief, fear, rage. I have a baby, and I don't know if we're going to figure this out before she's in school. But the psalmist writes, sorrow may endure for a night, but joy cometh with the dawn. Over the last five weeks, high schoolers in Florida and across the country have mobilized. In five weeks, teenagers in Lincoln, Nebraska, organized every single high school in the city, got permits, raised funds, got insurance, got a sound system, speakers, security, shut down roads, invited people, turned out thousands of people to march on the Capitol. In five weeks, I have never seen something like that happen in my life. <laughs> Yesterday, 500,000 people, half a million people marched in Washington, D.C. Chanting enough is enough, demanding action to stop gun violence. There were 800 marches across the country. Thousands marched here in Lincoln. 
The seniors that organized these marches were born in 1999. 1999 was the year of the Columbine shooting. They have lived their entire life with this issue. My generation's duck and cover is active shooter drills. I'm not sure if joy has come with the morning. It's still pretty gray out. It's still pretty cold. It is hard to see legislation passing tomorrow. But hope is a kind of joy. And after years, it feels like there may be hope dawning. The entrenched balance the perverse balance that has defined a generation might be starting to shift a little bit. And what has been stuck in my mind this week is the feeling that we're standing at a kind of social equinox, where these two things are held in balance, and maybe we're starting a new season. That metaphor, of course, breaks down a little bit when you try and apply astronomy to social change. Because equinox always leads to solstice, inexorably. It's the progression of seasons that allows Stonehenge to be accurate thousands, tens of thousands of years later. But social change is not inevitable in the same way. We can't just hope that things will get better believing that because someone else is handling it, our sincere prayers or earnest social media posts are enough. There's a quote I've come across a few times recently. It's often attributed to Pope Francis, but I actually, in, in researching this, I couldn't track down who said it originally. Of course, pray for the hungry. Then feed them. That's how prayer works. Put in other words, Rabbi Heschel, who we talked about last week, once said, after finishing a march during the civil rights movement, I felt like my feet were praying. <laughs> Gun violence in schools and out is a public health issue. And it is a political issue. And it is a moral issue. So yes, we as people of faith should pray about it. We should pray that the balance shifts and a new season comes, but pray with your feet. Pray with your phone calls. Pray with your letters to your representatives. Pray with your votes. Because new seasons take time and a hell of a lot of work. And we don't have the luxury of letting time pass. The students in Lincoln this week put out 17 desks on campus for the 17 students and staff members who lost their lives in Florida. And then this Thursday, they had to find an 18th desk for Jalen Wiley, killed by another student at Great Mills High School in St. Mary's County in Maryland, just up the road from where I went to college. A friend of mine teaches at that school. Watching her Facebook posts this week as they have dealt with that has broken my heart again. But this time, 
feels like there's more hope. That things might change. They're not going to change tomorrow, but they might change in the next year, five years, the next generation. This thing might shift. The balance might tip. In February, I ended with a quote from Valerie Carr from a talk she gave on revolutionary love in a time of rage. Here's her again. There's a moment on the birthing table that feels like dying. The body in labor stretches to form an impossible circle. The contractions are less than a minute apart. Wave after wave, there's barely time to breathe. The medical term, transition, because feels like dying is not scientific enough. It's called transition because something is about to emerge. Something new and wonderful could be coming. This moment feels like transition. The scales aren't balanced. What might emerge? Amen.